Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston. And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. Just some housekeeping stuff. I wanted to touch base on last week's episode, the second episode on trial four, the Sean Ellis case. We've been getting some negative feedback at the beginning, but it's really turned around to almost about 80% positive. So I want to thank everybody for sending in their support. And I'm sorry with that case, the facts simply don't support what that film portrayed. I've received a lot of emails that were very supportive last week, so that was great. Keep those coming. If you need to get a hold of me for any commentary whatsoever, the best way is email, and that's barry at bostonconfidential.net. Also, guys, keep a, an eye out for our blog. I've started becoming more active with the blog at bostonconfidential.net. If you want to check it out, I've got some new stuff up there. Also, you can leave a review right on the website, and you can hit the record button, and it'll just record your voice and then transfer it to an email to me if you'd rather do that. I don't know if anybody's noticed these past two weeks, I have not had any advertisements on the podcast and it's been so smooth. I'm actually thinking of doing away with the podcast advertising on the show, but I may go in a different direction and I may bounce some stuff off of you guys as we go forward with that. But for right now, I'm not looking at many new advertisers. I find that anything more than two advertisements in a podcast is just too much. And one of the reasons I got away from radio was all the advertisements. So I'm thinking of some alternatives and I'll bounce them off you. Don't worry. So this week I scored an interview with an author. His name is Jim Tracy and he wrote a book called Sworn to Silence. It is an absolute horror show, this book he wrote. He's a very good writer, don't get me wrong. But the book, as I mentioned before, it reads like a novel. And halfway through, you'd wish it was. I think I said that about one of Michelle McPhee's book as well. But this is in that same vein. This is the case of Robert Garrow, a serial killer who a lot of people don't know about it. The only real reason I know about it is because there was a Boston University student involved in this case, Susan Petz. She was a student at BU, a very good student from what I understand, and they were going to the Adirondacks to explore. It's a beautiful region, the Lakes region and all that, and Susan Petz was murdered. And I'm going to let Jim tell this story, but it's quite harrowing, so I'm going to leave you with a warning. This is a difficult one to get through, but I think you can make it through. All right, guys, the book is Sworn to Silence by Jim Tracy. Jim Tracy was a journalist out of Glen Falls, New York, for the Post-Gazette up there. That's the main newspaper for the Adirondacks area up there. And Jim Tracy is still a resident up there, and he was a great guy to talk to. So without further ado, Jim Tracy, welcome to Boston Confidential. So Jim Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today on Boston Confidential. I read your book. It's an insane thriller, and I wish it wasn't true. <laughs> I'm going to let you get started, but what everybody's going to want to know going forward is what is the Boston Confidential connection to this insane case? This was a story of a Boston University student named Sue Petz, who 48 years ago in the summer of 1973 was finishing up a journalism degree at BU, and she was dating a 23-year-old Harvard graduate named Danny D. Porter. Sue volunteered for the East Community Boston News, which was a weekly newspaper that was in publication for several years back then. And her boyfriend, 23-year-old Danny Porter, had played an instrumental role in the presidential nomination of George McGovern in the 1972 presidential election. 
McGovern went from one of the longest shots in the race to the eventual Democratic nominee, although he lost to Richard Nixon. Winning happened to win. The only state he won was the state of Massachusetts. <laughs> and he had strong backing from Edward Kennedy in Boston. Right. So anyways, we have this young couple from Boston, very successful. Sue's about to graduate with a degree from journalism. And Danny Porter's polling company played a major role in McGovern's campaign. And they looked like they were going to work for uh, Senator Ed Kennedy in the 76 election if he decided to run. Kennedy was close to these people. And Time Magazine called the Porter's polling company uh, the hottest and youngest polling group in America. Right. And these two kids had a bright future. So anyways, they wanted to take a weekend vacation to the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York. Neither one had ever been there. So on Saturday night, July 14th, 1973, these two went to the Adirondacks and never came back. And now this is not your typical disappearance and story. Their disappearance would eventually lead to a landmark legal case that had very high constitutional implications and very significant jurisprudence implications. Right. And that continues today. They're still citing that case today, aren't they? Yes, they're citing the case today. The formal case name is People v. Belge, B-E-L-G-E. It's more commonly referred to as the missing bodies case or the buried bodies case. Right. And it's still taught in law schools today because the attorneys at one point saw some bodies and they couldn't break lawyer-client confidentiality. Is that right? Correct. I'll get to that part later. I'll go back to pets. So anyways, Danny and Sue leave Boston and head to the Adirondacks. And when they hadn't returned on Monday, Porter's partner, Patrick Cadell, who had an office in Cambridge Square, where the polling company was based, called police because he had not heard from Porter or nor had he returned. And police told them to give it more time. They were a young couple. Maybe they stayed a couple extra nights. But Cadell knew Porter would have called if you know he sensed there was a problem, yeah. some danger that not hearing from his friend. Right. So anyways, two days after Cadell called police, a man called police and reported a, an abandoned car on a dirt road in the Adirondack Forest. For those not familiar with the Adirondacks, it's one of the wildest portions of the eastern United States. It's a six million acres of forests, lakes, ponds, all kinds of wildlife. So it's a yeah. very desolate place. It's spotted with towns and villages throughout, but most of it's wildlife. So Cadell was concerned that, you know, his friends could be anywhere. They right. hadn't called. Anyways, a man discovers an abandoned car. The car turns out to be the car that Porter drove to the Adirondacks. Police investigate and find nothing amiss. The car was locked up. Camping equipment was inside. The keys had been taken. There was no scuffle marks, no blood marks, nothing but an abandoned car. So they figured the Sue Pats and Dan Porter would return when they were done hiking or camping or whatever they were doing. Police called Cadell to inform them that they had found the car. And Cadell immediately knew something was wrong. And he gathered up a couple of friends, a man named Jim King, who was the executive administrator of Ted Kennedy's district office in Boston, and Al Pierce, who would go on to work for the Kennedy Library. And they traveled to the Adirondacks. They asked police. They wanted to see where the car had been parked. And after searching the woods, the same woods police had searched, the same road police had searched, they found Porter's body. He had been tied to a tree and stabbed to death. Right. And... They called police, and ironically, police suspected the three men. As the police investigated more, they learned that Cadell had a $150,000 life insurance policy on Porter, which would be equivalent to about a million dollars today. Right, because they were in business together. They were in business together. And crime was such an aberration in the Adirondacks, violent crime, there hardly is any, that police did not believe that it, you know, it was a random act. Right. But more importantly... As they began investigating the men, they also began searching for Sue Pets, who they had not found. Police assumed that when Danny Porter was murdered, she ran into the woods and got lost. Right. So the largest search party in Warren County history, which is near Lake George, a resort destination, took place looking for Sue Pets. And because of their connections with Senator Kennedy and they had such bright futures, and the population in the Adirondack triples in the summertime. A lot of media got involved. The Boston Globe, Chicago Tribune, where Pets was originally from. So this turned into a major search for Sue Pets. 
And they had no idea. They could not find her. They had no idea what happened. They began to speculate that whoever killed Porter took pets with them. Right. And this search went on for almost two weeks when on a Sunday morning, the last Sunday in July of 1973, the search party got word that there was another murder up the road about 40 minutes away. Same thing. Long-haired young man tied to a tree and stabbed to death. Yeah. Police left the pet search and closed in on that area and identified the killer. There was three surviving eyewitnesses. They identified the killer as a Robert F. Garrow from Syracuse, New York, who had originally grown up in the Adirondacks and had a long history of sexual crimes. Right. And right there, because of the similarities between the Porter murder and the second murder, they knew the same guy had perpetrated both crimes. And they theorized that this man had Sue Pets with him. Now, this guy, Garrow, he is an absolute monster. Sue Pets is the connection to Boston. So we cover up local Boston jurisdiction. Tell us a little bit about Mr. Garrow. He is probably the most underreported. I hate to give away the story right at the beginning, but he's probably the most underreported serial killer in recent history. Can you give us the background on Mr. Garrow? Yes. When police started investigating Garrow, you know, they found out he grew up in Mineville, New York, up in the high peaks region of the Adirondacks during the Depression. And right away, his parents knew something was wrong. Couldn't put their thumb on it. But of their five children, he was the most incorrigible. Right. Now, this is the Depression going into the 1940s. And they decided to lease him out to a farm nearby where he would live there, work and go to school and church. Right. Thinking that would help him. Today, it sounds a little harsh, but back then... Often boys that misbehaved, not often, but boys that misbehaved would be leased out to farms to work. Right. In the short term, it did work a little bit, didn't it? Yes. He had structure in his life. He became a hard worker. He became physically strong from eating at the farm. And he uh, started to develop into you know, a productive person. Right. But slowly, little troubles emerged. They caught him having sex with the animals when he was 11. Right. He was also started slaughtering farm animals for the nearby restaurant. That the and he enjoyed that a little bit too much, didn't he? Yeah, he, he took to it. It wasn't something that was forced onto him. He actually enjoyed it. You know, he talked about that later in life, how he enjoyed killing the animals. And he would, right. he would save the blood and his mother would make blood pudding out of it using vinegar and spices. And he really right. liked blood pudding. And so the little bit offness of Gerald continued, you know, and what was beginning was a psychopathic checklist, right? Abuse of animals, incorrigible, no empathy, right? The checklist was beginning, but of course, back in the 1940s, you know, psychiatry was in its nascent stages. It wasn't really a checklist then. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No checklist. So they just knew he was troubled. So he stayed at the farm and then the man who ran the farm died. And anyways, Gerald went back home when he was 15 after eight years at the farm and his parents couldn't control him. And then he ended up getting in a fight with his father, physical fist fight with his father. And he was sent to reform school in Rochester Right. when he was 16. A movie was later made out of that same reform school called Sleepers. Right. Some people may be familiar with it. So he went to the Rochester reform school and he stayed a year there. We don't know much about his stay there. It just said he completed 13 months of full sentence and his oldest sister got him out of there and he, he went to live with her in Buffalo. He joined the air force at 17 and the trouble continued to evolve. Right. He got in fights. He stole a camera off his sergeant. He was selling pornography in the air force and he was a bedwetter too. Yeah. Another checklist item. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, he was discharged. He got a medical discharge from the service and he moved to the capital of New York, Albany, New York in 1955. And He got in more trouble there. He did end up marrying and having two children, and they had an apartment in Albany. Did that settle him down at all? Not really, no. At the time, he was having a deviant sexual relationship with his male lawyer. The male lawyer was whipping him, taking pictures, homosexual acts, even though he was married with the two children. 
anyways, his, his life of crime culminated in 1961 when he approached a couple, told them it was a robbery, marched them off into the bushes, hit the boy in the back of the head with one punch and knocked him out and raped his girlfriend. And the next day he was arrested and he was sent away to prison. He became a model prisoner. He got sentenced to 20 years. He did his time in a little over six because his behavior was extraordinary. Right. Which was part of the psychopathic thing where, you know, he was kind of a chameleon. Right. He's a master manipulator. And he he ends up serving the full sentence on that. No, he was sentenced for 20 years and he ended up serving a little more than six because he was so well behaved. And the other important note, he took over 3000 credit hours in uh, educational courses. Right mostly in radio repair, TV repair, mechanics, any subject they offered, he took. Right. Uh, theology, comparative religion, math, and he would squeal on other inmates. Right. So he was such a model prisoner, he was released in a short time. So now he's out, and what prisoners who spend their life in prison like the call is he's on a run. Right. You know, they do their time, and then they go on another run, hoping not right. to get caught, but So his wife had stayed with him during the prison time. And she was an old fashioned housewife who she was going to be with one man the rest of her life. So Garrel wanted to start anew. So he moved to the city of Syracuse after he was released from prison. This is 1968 and there's no sexual predator list. Right. So he starts over in Syracuse and the first year he did okay, but then he started raping again, doing the same thing he had done in Albany. But this time he was much smarter, much more refined. And had a lot of luck. Right. And basically what happened is from 1968 to 1973, he traveled the roads of upstate New York, raping and sometimes killing people. Right. No one ever knew this. And the reason they didn't know this is like he had done in prison, he had become seemingly a model citizen. He was a model parolee, never gave the parole officer any trouble, bought a house, Worked full-time as a mechanic at a bakery where he was a supervisor of fixing machines right. used to uh, bake bread. Now, Jim, what was his relationship at home like? Was he able to maintain a normal marriage, normal family life, or was he abusive? Well, on the surface, it seemed perfect. And he lived next door to a uh, Syracuse police officer. And the, the police officer's son said uh, on the street they lived right near Syracuse University, Berwyn Avenue, Every neighbor in that neighborhood had some kind of baggage, but not Robert Garrow. His family was perfect. They were like the TV show Happy Days. Right. Mother, father, and the two kids. But behind closed doors, there was trouble. Yeah. Everybody who later investigated him sensed that he had some kind of strange control over them. Right. Most likely, they knew he was capable of hurting them. Later, we find out that he was having sexual relations with his daughter. Jeez. He was physically abusive to his son. Yeah. His wife, she seemed to support him and love him, but she had been conned too. Right. She had been. Yeah. He promised the world and, you know, I don't think he physically abused her, but I think she knew he was capable of it. Now at the beginning, he seems to space out his attacks. He's satisfied for a while. It builds up, does it again. Is that accurate? And what makes him go from that once in a while attacks to this stretch of madness that you're going to tell us about. He had been very meticulous through this four years, very careful with his attacks and his rapes. And they were spread out throughout New York on Memorial day weekend, 1973, he abducted two girls in Syracuse ages nine and 10. He told them he had a gun. They had walked from their homes a short distance to a store that sold ice cream. And they went to get ice cream and he approached them. It was a pretty busy area. He was good at this. He approached them, showed them a gun, told them to walk across the street in Syracuse and get in his car. And they did. And he took them away and had sexual acts with them, put them back in his car and brought them back to the ice cream stand and dropped them off. Yeah. Jesus. At least they survived. My God. They survived and they, they were physically unhurt uh, not to be too graphic, but he had them do things to him, but he, you know, he did not do stuff to them. Right. Right. So he brings them back, drops them off. And of course he thinks he's gotten away with it again. Right. One of the girls, the older girl, the 10 year old 
had great memory of not only the route they had traveled, but the car and the description of the guy. And Gerald drove at the time a unique car. It was a 1972 Volkswagen Fastback orange sports car, very flat. Right. And he had a unique look. And she remembered he had a tattoo on his forearm. She remembered he had a CB radio on the car. She remembered there was two hard hats in the back seat. And the 10-year-old gave tremendous description. Well, three days later, a policeman from Syracuse, he worked for the Geddes Police Department, a suburb of Syracuse. He spotted the car and only because of its looks, it was a sharp looking car. And then he started thinking that, boy, that was his John Doe that this girl had reported, abducted her three right. days ago. And he arrested him. And he learned it was Robert Garrow and he learned of his past criminal history. So Garrow was arrested for something that he didn't think he could get out of this time. Right. And he ended up being locked up for a couple of weeks. And here's where we get into the legal thing. Because he was on parole, it was assumed he would be sent back to prison for being arrested. Sure. But at the time in 73, because of the Attica prison riots, there was a lot of legislation coming out favoring the rights of the accused. Right. His attorney, Frank Armani of Syracuse, who was a civil lawyer, but did some criminal cases. He argued to the parole board. He used a recent U.S. Supreme Court decision, Morrissey versus Brewer, that said a criminal arrested now had to have a due process hearing before he could be sent back to prison on parole violation. Right. And parole, because of the new legislation, decided to let Garrow go loose. Which oh my Lord. ended up being a major mistake in this case, which would open up all kinds of problems later on with the parole let this guy loose. This known sexual offender who had served time for rape and he had abducted these two girls and he was free again. But as his court date was approaching, the first one was July 12th. He was doing Onondaga County Court for the abduction of the two girls. His lawyer told him he could beat the rap because he felt the girls had been coached to know that much detail about him and his car. But Garrow didn't want to face court. You know, he had a thousand secrets in his head, all these crimes he had been committed on his days off from work. Right. And he couldn't deal with court. So he fled to the Adirondacks. Right. Bought a rifle, bought a camping equipment, and fled to the Adirondacks. Is he by himself at this time or did he take the wife? He is by himself. She said she couldn't control him. He took off and he'll either go to Florida or the Adirondacks and right. you know, the pressure of the court case for July 12th. So that weekend, he skipped the court day on July 12th, Thursday, July 12th, and he headed to the Adirondacks. And at the same time, Sue Petz and Danny Porter left Boston on Saturday, July 14th, and they headed to the Adirondacks and they intersected somehow. Right. And Porter was killed and Petz went missing. Jeez. Lo and behold... Garrow's lawyer, Armani, got the case adjourned until July 26. So he got another break. Yeah. So he actually defaulted on the rape case of those two girls. And he basically gets the default removed and put forward like, oh, he just put it in the, his calendar wrong. Right. Yes. What the hell? And so they gave him two more weeks. And a lot of this had to do with his good lawyer, Armani. And I call it good lawyer because... You know, what a good lawyer would do and what a good person would do are two different things. But as a good defense lawyer. Yeah, much different things. <laughs> he was able to talk the judge into a, a two-week adjournment. So Garrow was free again for another two weeks, but the pressure had built up with him. He started becoming careless and he started a more frequent rape and murder. And he also had made the decision. His MO was raping the girl, but if she fought, he would kill him. But a lot of girls he raped didn't fight him and he let them go. Right. But he decided after the two little girls turned him in, he was going to leave no more witnesses. Yeah, that was a big change, right? That was a big change. And so the people he encountered after July 12th had no chance of living. Right. And as his lawyer said, you weren't going to physically take him because he was very strong, maybe five foot, 11, six foot, 215 pounds of muscle. Right. Detective said, you know, he was built like a bull. And you also weren't going to rationalize your way out. No. He wouldn't listen to anything, you know. Right. Now, did he keep some of his victims for an extended period of time? Well, we would later learn that when he killed Danny Porter on Saturday, July 14th, and he abducted Susan Petz, he took her behind his parents' house in Mineville, and they set up camp, and he camped with her for three days, keeping her alive. 
and abusing her. Yeah. On Monday, July 16th, 1973, at the height of the Watergate scandal on television, she grabbed his knife, tried to stab him. He wrestled the knife away from her. And then after he killed her, he hit her body in one of the mines in Mineville. Mineville was a iron ore mining town. Right. The mines had shut down two years before, so it was very desolate. But the mountain that they were on was loaded with mines in the Adirondacks. So he took her and put her in an air vent at the side of this mine. It's a little small hole and put some tires and stuff over it. And that's where she ended up. Right. Meanwhile, police, after the second murder, they had discovered her boyfriend murdered. And then they had another murder 40 minutes away. They began pursuing Robert Carroll because they felt that he had pets with him and she right. was still alive. They didn't know he had killed her. So what happened was the largest manhunt in New York state history, the largest and costliest manhunt in state history. Right. So for two weeks in the Adirondacks, we had a madman running around loose and two to 400 police officers pursuing him. Right. And they were pulling over everybody in the Adirondacks. You're going to open your trunk. This was the seventies. If the cops said, tell you to open your trunk, you're going to open your trunk on those days. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think they were pulling over every car, every other car I read. It was very in depth. Yes. And no matter how many times you pass, like newspaper reporters would often have to pass five or six times through a roadblock. Each time they had to get out of their car. And back then you'd have no latch for the trunk. You had to use the key. Yeah. They had to go back, open the key. And it was hairy because the police officers had their guns aimed at the trunk. And Sure. No. Yes. Every car was stopped and people were scared shitless. Everybody had weapons in their vehicles. Police looked the other way because they understood what was going on. So this shut the whole area down and scared everybody, ruined the tourist season. Campsites had hardly anybody in it at the peak of the tourist season. Right. Carnivals stopped and basically it shut down the Adirondack Mountains for the summer of 73. And the reason it was taking police so long to catch Garrow, there was a couple factors, but the main factor was the main investigator wanted to know where Sue Petz was. So he ordered that Garrow be captured alive. Yeah. So he was spotted several times, but police held their fire. Yeah. The head investigator had said that I don't want any of these weekend warriors because they had a lot of sheriff deputies and volunteers. I don't want any of these weekend warriors firing a shot. Right. Called the BCI, the Bureau of Criminal Investigation. So this manhunt went on. Anyways, eventually, Garrow stole a car and escaped farther north. And police pursued him. A trooper pursued him after he ran a roadblock and the trooper car uh, broke down in pursuit. Yeah. Garrow was gone again. So the manhunt started in another area of the Adirondacks and he was eventually wounded and captured. Right. They began to interrogate him about Sue Pets and they couldn't break him. And it's likely in the first 48 hours was very physical interrogation back in 1973. There's a lot of evidence of it and they couldn't get him to tell him where Pets was. And they held out hopes he was alive and they switched tactics and began to be nice to him to try to see if that would work. But anyways, during the manhunt, they had found Garrow's abandoned car and hidden in the rear wheel of the car was a little compartment was a map. Right. And they had already found a map in his glove compartment that was pretty much new and unmarked, just a regular road map in New York and surrounding areas. Well, what they found in the hidden compartment in the car was a plastic bag. And when the detective unfurled the map, it was heavily notated in pencil. Right. And lo and behold, it traced the route right past the Porter murder scene in pencil. And there was around 27 cities in New York state and one in Canada that were marked with symbols, different symbols. Right. So they knew the map had significance. Sure. And after a few days of not being able to break Garrow, they approached him with the map. It was the first time he showed any reaction to any interrogation. When he saw the map, he flew into a rage and started screaming for his lawyer. Yeah. This is when he was in custody. So they knew the map held significance. And they began to investigate this map. And there was a lot of cases that he fit his MO throughout New York. So he became a suspect in a lot of murders. But And that body that was found like 40 minutes away was on there. So they knew this was accurate. He wasn't screwing around. That map was marked for a reason. Yes. He knew that area like the back of his hand. Do you think this was kind of a souvenir? Like he didn't really need a map of the Adirondacks. 
No, I think it was a souvenir. And, and matter of fact, the map had uh, tape on the four corners, scotch tape. Right. And they knew it had been hung on a wall. So, you know, what the detective concluded in the end was this was simply his hobby. Yeah. On his days off, he'd take his map and he'd travel around, travel from place to place, look for girls to rape. And, and he kind of thought this was the end game, that court case with the rape of the nine and 10 year old girls. There's nothing left to lose. And then his, you know, his, then his attorney gets him a continuance. Yes. And so he goes over the edge because he's finally arrested and facing court, which he skipped three times before they put a bench warrant out for him. So anyways, Garrow's in custody. He's in a hospital in Plattsburgh, New York. Police have no answers on Sue Pets. Right. Now we enter his attorney again, Frank Armani, the dogmatic attorney who had gotten him all this time and by getting his case adjourned three times. And Armani brings in a partner because of the enormity of the case, a man named Frank Belgi, who is a pure criminal defense lawyer and one of the best in upstate New York. Got a right. very stellar reputation. And Armani knows that this case is too big for him. He's a civil lawyer that just dabbles in crime once in a while. So he brings in Belgi and they want to know everything that Garrow has done because they want to have all the facts so that they can put up a full defense. And of course, Garrow puts him off. Garrow knows he doesn't trust with any man, whether it's friend or foe. And they get nowhere with Garrow. He goes into another psychopathic ploy, which is to fake amnesia, pretend he's fallen asleep, can't remember. And Belgi threatens to quit the case. And so Armani, out of desperation, decides to hypnotize Garrow. Armani learned hypnotism as a party trick, and he's never <laughs> used it in his legal work because of its inadmissibility in court and other implications. Right. But out of desperation, he decides he's had success at it at parties. He decides to use it on Garrow. And he tells Garrow that when he wakes up, that he needs to talk to Frank Belgi and tell him everything. Right. But Armani does not tell Belgi that he used hypnotism because Belgi would go through the roof. So he hypnotizes Garrow, feels it's successful, and he tells Belgi to talk to Garrow one more time. And if he doesn't talk this time, you can quit the case. So Belgi gives it one more shot and Garrow pours his soul out. Right. For six days, he told Belgi his whole life story. The lawyers later said that he admitted to four murders, but that was probably to keep the damage control down. I found out later and he had told them about all 20 something murders. You kidding me? I didn't know that. Twice as many rapes. Oh my Lord. Poured his guts out to him for six days. He also told him where he had left Sue Pets and where he had left another body, a 16-year-old supposed runaway named Alicia Hawk, who went missing in Syracuse on Wednesday, July 11th, 1973, three days before Porter was murdered. Right. He told them where those two bodies were. They were somewhat skeptical and incredulous that he was telling the truth. So they went and looked for the bodies and they found Sue Pets in a mine in Mineville and they found Alicia Hawk in a Oakwood Cemetery in Syracuse. And they took photos of the two girls and Hawk had been strangled and her head had been detached by scavenging animals. Right. And in a move that would cause him trouble later, Belgi took his handkerchief out and moved her head back to her body for a photo. Oh my Lord. Now they had this terrible burden of the location of the girls and they decided because of their oaths of office where when they had taken the bar in New York, they had sworn to, keep the secrets of their client inviolate. Right. And Armani was unsure if that was the right thing to do, not to tell. And he sought out legal counsel and they told him that, you know, there's the fifth, sixth and 14th amendments. You can't turn your own client in. You can't rat on your own client without his permission. Now, if Garrow was going to commit a murder or commit a crime, you can turn your client in. Right. But because these girls were already dead and Garrow was in custody and no more crimes could be committed. There was no opportunity. You couldn't turn your own client in. And it was a terrible position because what a good person would do and what a good lawyer would do were two different things. Right. And in a way, it's going to sound terrible, but these men were so honest with themselves, these two lawyers, that they decided instead of being self-serving, turn their own client in and get rid of the, all this crap, they decided 
to follow the law to the T and not tell, even though it was going to mean harm to them for what they did. They knew, you know, the public would be outraged. Right. But they saw no way around it. But they didn't give up hope. The two lawyers were slowly being destroyed by this secret. Right. And their families knew because of how they were acting. Armani's wife knew and Belgi's wife knew. You know, Belgi would come home every night and cry about this because he couldn't release this information. Right. You know, there was tremendous pressure from the families, from police to where are these girls? Right. They were ramping up an insanity defense, correct? Yeah, they decided they were going to go with an insanity defense. And the second murder of a boy named Phil Dombluski who died after Porter. Right. But the lawyers, they decided there had to be a way to tell, to give this information out. There had to be a legal way. And what they decided was they would plea bargain the location of the girls or Gerald being placed in a mental institution. Right. He had planned on escaping. Right. And he wanted to go on a mental home because that would be his easiest route of so escape. Eventually, they're successful in this, and there was a lot of controversy because now it comes to light that these attorneys knew where these two bodies were and didn't return them to their families. The plea bargain failed. Let me mention that. Okay. You know, they wanted to shift the onus onto the state and say the state refused to plea bargain, so we couldn't release the girls. But so we go almost a whole year. In the meantime, passersby had found both bodies. Right. So young boys had found Sue Pets in Mineville, and she was flown home to Chicago and buried. And Boston University granted her degree posthumously. Right. Her journalism degree, and she hadn't finished that last semester. So right. she's an official graduate of BU. And the other girl in Syracuse was found, too. And the lawyers denied knowing anything. But anyways, in the next summer, Garrow went on trial in the summer of 74, and Hamilton County, the least populous county in New York State. And we had this uh, trial this century in the Adirondacks. And during the course of testimony, it was revealed that the lawyers knew all along where the two bodies were hid. Right. When the newspapers picked up on that and it started spreading around the country, all hell broke loose. It became a national story. How could two lawyers, officers of the court, know where missing bodies are and not report them? Right. No one took their side. Very few people. Right. It was very difficult. Yeah. And they had to explain that they had a moral and ethical obligation to their client. And it was a matter of what was the higher moral good. Right. Holding up the Constitution, the oath of office, United States law, or relieving the grieving parents of these missing children. And they decided that the Constitution was the higher moral good. And that's when their life really spun out of control. Uh, they, They lost all their customers. Right. The editorials just poured into the newspapers, particularly in Syracuse, but all over New York Times, everywhere. Right. They appeared in Newsweek magazine, Times magazine, condemning their actions. And they lost their customers. Belgi began drinking heavily. Right. Armani started getting health problems. He had a couple heart attacks and they ended up going in front of the grand jury for what they did for not revealing the bodies. Right. That case was ultimately dismissed because they just couldn't. They couldn't reveal. There was really no way, was it? There was no way to reveal the bodies under any legal way. Right. Now, what happened with Garrow? He continued with the insanity defense, but it was ultimately unsuccessful, correct? Yes. Garrow was found guilty. They used a bizarre defense strategy in the sense they had him tell his bizarre life story of sex with animals, homosexual activity, being married. And they also got him to admit to four murders in court and eight rapes. Right. They did find him guilty and he went to prison and once again, started conning the system, began suing the state for every shortcoming. He faked paralysis from his injury upon capture. He had been wounded in the ankle, the Achilles right. heel with a shotgun to stop him without killing him. He sat in a wheelchair after his capture and pretending he was paralyzed in that foot, although he wasn't. But he was such a con man that he sat in that wheelchair for five years. Meanwhile, he was working out in his cell at night when people weren't looking. And he began suing New York State for every shortcoming in the prison system. Right. The food he was getting, lack of handicap access in the 70s. Yeah, he was a professional complainer. Yes, very well put. Professional complainer to the point that the state got so annoyed at the lawsuits that 
they asked him what he would do to drop the lawsuits. What does he need? And he said, all he wants is to go to a handicapped facility where he can get the care he needs and deserves. Right. So he knew that was more of a medical facility than prison because there is that population who are incarcerated who need some assistance. Yes. But he knew that was going to be lax. Yes. There was a Fishkill prison in Poughkeepsie, New York, Beacon, New York, near Poughkeepsie. It was a maximum security prison in New York State. But it also had one building, building 13, a lucky number, that was for elderly and handicapped. It was basically a nursing home. Right. Gerald got transferred to the nursing home. And the guys there were, you know, in their last stages of life or in wheelchairs, crutches, walkers. Right. And a minimum security. There was prison guards, but most of the inmates were so feeble that, you know, there was not a lot of oversight. So Gerald goes in there. Now he's 42 years old. He's still in great shape because he's been secretly exercising. Right. He becomes the alpha male in there and starts doing work for the guards because he could type. And so he was on the guard side and he was at the other prisoners were scared of him. And then he had a gun snuck into the prison, which I go into in the book. Right. No, I remember. You got to tell a little bit about the Kentucky Fried Chicken story. Okay. Gerald becomes a jailhouse lawyer where he's helping the other inmates with legal cases. Right. He befriends this one inmate who ironically was in the handicap facility, not because of any physical disabilities, but because he had had a couple mental breakdowns in maximum security. Right. He was kind of weak-minded and they decided that he'd either die or commit suicide in maximum. So they sent him to this handicap facility and Garrow sensed his weakness and he befriended him, became his lawyer. And the guy's wife would bring food every weekend. Yeah. Garrow decided that this wife could get a gun into the prison. And basically he threatened their lives. He said he would send his son down to New York city and have her killed if she didn't bring a gun into the prison. And they couldn't rat because her husband, Vinny, thought that, you know, he'd be killed as a prison rat. So they went along with it reluctantly. So they snuck a pistol. They put it in a bucket of Kentucky fried chicken. They poured mashed potatoes, gravy, and coleslaw over it (laughs) and decided to bring it in on Labor Day because the elderly and handicapped inmates were going to have a picnic out in the fenced-in area on Labor Day. They would eat their lunches out at the picnic tables. And there was no metal detectors where they were going to eat. And the lady that would bring in the food every weekend, she was familiar with guards because she brought food every weekend. So when she came with Kentucky Fried Chicken, they looked in the bucket, but it was so messy, they didn't put their hand in it. Right. And she brought the gun in and put it on a picnic table. And later she saw Garrow and his son eating there. And she figured he must have got the pistol. Right. Snuck the pistol into the jail. He never went through the metal detectors because his wheelchair set it off. So they would just on the metal detectors. Right. So he went around the metal detectors. He had a gun in the prison for a week. Wow. And then on September 9th, 1978, a Friday night, he walked out of his wheelchair, bent some bars on the porch out front, slithered through, climbed a 15-foot fence, and took off into the woods that surrounded the prison. It was miles and miles of acreage around the prison. And it hits the newspaper in 1978, five years after the manhunt, Robert Garrett on the loose again. Right. It was absolutely insane because the state had spent a small fortune catching this guy and imprisoning him. And now he's in a minimum security prison and crippled and he somehow escapes. Right. It became such a hot button issue that the governor election was that fall. It, it became a political issue in the governor's race. Yeah. You know? Sort of like the Dukakis, uh, Willie, right. Willie Horton, Willie Horton case. So how did the governor have the most dangerous man in New York in a minimum security prison? And how could a man in a wheelchair paralyzed escape? Right. <laughs> and this time on Monday, September 11th, 1978, they found him and he had the pistol and he shot a corrections officer who was wounded, but lived and they returned fire and killed him. Yeah. That was the end of the story. Yeah, I have to venture to say, Mr. Garrow, after those guards realized it was Garrow who was outside the gate, he wasn't coming back in, I don't think. You know what I mean? Those guys are are done with him now. The state of New York, the United States, everybody's done with Garrow at this point. I mean, (laughs) please, how many more people can you hurt? And today, that's a good point you bring up because this story lasted so long most of the entire decade of the 70s, it never became well-known after that because people were so exhausted by this guy. Right. 
so tired of the story, so tired of Garrow, right. that the story kind of slipped into history. Matter of fact, one of the lawyers, Frank Armani, wrote a book in 1984 called Privileged Information. Right. The good read. And it was factually incorrect. It was a justification of his actions in the case. Right. But it is a good read. And the book became a flop because it was too close to the 70s when it was released. Right. And the point I'm making is this is why the story is not better known. You know, why serial killer of 27 people is unheard of in America mostly. And why this incredible legal story is known well in law schools, but not with the general public is the people who lived through this did not want. They were just fatigued with this 10 year old story. Yeah. And this was the darkest side of human nature. Really is. Even to this day, 50 years later, nearly 50 years later, those close to the case won't talk about it. Yeah. It really ruined those two attorneys, didn't it? Yes. It ruined the two attorneys. Belgi ended up having a heart attack fueled by alcoholism in 1989 and died in Florida. Right. Armani, however, rebuilt his law practice. And I wrote six-part series in 2000 for a Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper in upstate New York. And Armani started taking that story around to law schools. I explained why he did what he did. And lo and behold, he started lecturing at law schools across the country. Right. And he started becoming sort of a heroic figure for upholding attorney-client privilege. Yeah. He started getting awards. Matter of fact, Syracuse University hands out an award in his name. Yeah. The Frank Armani Advocacy Award. And he's sort of a legend in the legal circles now. Right. And he's still alive. He was born in 1927. He'll be 93 in September. Right. And he's still alive, still lives in the Syracuse area. But anyways, he wrote a book in 84 that was a flop. But what I did is I took that newspaper story that I wrote in 2000. And for the last nine years, I researched it even further. Right. Dug up tons of eyewitnesses and people who worked the case. Many have passed since my research because right. we're elderly. At yeah. Put together this story in my book, Sworn to Silence by Jim Tracy. It was released at the end of March. So less than three months ago. It can be purchased anywhere, any bookstore, it's in libraries, right. on the internet. And it tells the whole Robert Garrow story. It does. And I, I think I mentioned this to you. I started reading at the beginning. I'm like, well, this reads like a novel. And then halfway through, I'm wishing it was a novel because it gets dark very quickly. It's an excellent read. Like I say, it's almost formatted like a novel, but by the end of it, you're going to wish it was a novel. Yes. And that was one of the things as a nonfiction writer is you try to write it as a novel, but you also have to be factual. Right. There's no conversation that was made up. Right. Nothing's embellished. Matter of fact, I probably downplayed the crimes a little bit because of their goriness, but it's the full bore story of the Robert Garrow story. And it's really three stories in one. Yeah. It talks about Garrow's crimes, search for soup hats. It talks about the lawyer's dilemma. Right. The lawyers could be their own story. Yes. Yes. That's an incredible thing. You know, probably unprecedented in uh, legal history. Even today now, lawyers don't want to hear about other crimes. They kind of wink an eye at their client, yeah. like, you know, well, you're being charged with this crime. Let's focus on that. Yeah, stay focused, they say. Yeah. <laughs> so for these two lawyers to want to know the whole story and then to go find the bodies to confirm it and then to take yeah. photographs and to plea bargain. And it's really an incredible story. A lot of people call it a mental magnet. You know, once you start reading it and uh, looking things up in old newspapers and on the Internet, you kind of get hooked on it. Yeah, it's kind of addictive. I'll mention one last thing about my personal experience with it is I was born in 1965 and the manhunt took place in 1973 when I was eight. Right. I knew that area of the Adirondacks where they were searching for Garrow because my father had a hunting camp there. Really? Speculator, New York. And Speculator was a big name in our house because my father, you know, looked forward to hunting there every fall. Right. I had actually in 71 and 72 had gone with him and follow him around with a BB gun during the summer when it wasn't hunting season yeah. <laughs> and we would never shoot at anything. But anyways, I knew the area and I was starting to read. I was eight years old. So when this happened, you know, I was very attuned to what was going on. And then we got a call one night that said, Gerald broke into the hunting camp. No kidding. So we went there the next day and I didn't know it at the time, but at that time, Gerald had stolen the car and escaped the area, which my father must've known. Really? 
because we went right to the camp and the police told us go there, but don't touch anything. It was a sunny day, summer day. And in fact, I think it was around August 9th, 1973. He had placed a white card table in front of the camp and his great big boot print, the dust print was on the table. No kidding. He had stepped up on the table with one foot and leaped through the window above the door and slithered camp. Wow. He ate clothes, he rested and ate food. And the next day he stole a car. And so as an eight-year-old, I saw this great big boot print of the. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Thinking, you know, he's somewhere nearby. He was actually captured that day, about two hours north of there. So that began my interest in the story, but I never really knew a lot about it until I read Armani's book, Privileged Information. And then I started learning about the lawyer dilemma. And that's when I began to investigate myself. Right. It's an excellent work. Jim Tracy, Sworn to Silence. It's an excellent read. I highly recommend it. I want to thank you for joining me today on Boston Confidential. And if anything new comes up on this case, if you have anything new you're going to write, please drop us a line. We'll have you back on the show. Definitely. Definitely. It was good talking to you. All right, guys. That was Jim Tracy who wrote Sworn to Silence about the Robert Garrow case in upstate New York. If you were listening, you should have picked up that he believes that there's 27 victims, not the four. It's crazy. What do you do with people like this? There's an element in our society today to get rid of prisons. What would you do with a Robert Garrow? Because I know this was in the 1970s, but there's a Robert Garrow today in your neighborhood, in your city, and in your state, and they don't want to take him off the street anymore. What do you do? Big question mark. All right, guys, I'll leave you there. If you want to get a hold of me, I'm Barry at bostonconfidential.net. That's Barry at bostonconfidential.net. I will see you on the flip side. Talk to you soon, guys.